Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to In Session. Again, my name is Colin McGuire, your host. I am with senior reporter for the Frederick News Post, Danielle E. Gaines. How are you this week, Danielle? Hi, Colin. I'm good. I'm tired. It's Friday. Thank goodness. (laughs) You sound tired. (laughs) It's been a very busy week. Aha. And we're going to get to that busy week, I I would guess. Yes. Good. Good, good, good. Well, I want to start, first of all, uh, with something that I think we briefly touched on before. Um, and reading this story, however briefly, kind of made me smile. It's about drivers Yay. staying <laughs> <laughs> drivers staying to the right. Um, can you... So th- yeah. this is interesting. Now, the way I understand this... They, now, I'm sure I misunderstood this, so please correct me if I'm wrong. If you you will not be able to consistently drive in the left lane, you can only use that to pass people. Is that correct? That's true, and you should already be doing that. Exactly. But, uh, this is <laughs> this is a bill that would put a law on the books, as many other states already have, and it would reserve the left lane for passing and overtaking other vehicles, and and that's it. Pass, get back in your lane. Pass, get back in your lane. <laughs> wow. So how would they enforce this? So the the committee spoke a little bit about how it would be enforced. And, you know, there would be a lot of instances when this type of a bill, which, by the way, was introduced by Frederick County Delegate Bill Folden. Um, and they talked about the different times in which this wouldn't really be enforced. So traffic jams, poor weather, if there's, you know, a traffic obstruction or a car accident up ahead. But um, it is a law that a lot of other states have. And if you've ever driven on the New Jersey Turnpike, for example, you will notice that that left lane, it's very deep in culture that people don't drive in it. People pass in it and then they get over. And it's in New Jersey, it's very... Um, uh, strictly enforced, but there are other states where it's not as strictly enforced, and yet you have a better flow of traffic because people aren't clogging up the left lane. Are you telling me that New Jersey's better than Maryland? Yeah, you also don't have to pump your own gas in New Jersey, right? So, <laughs> That's very true, yes. I mean, uh, yeah. So what, do we have a, a proposed penalty for all these people? There is a penalty right now. It's a ticket. Um, It's a misdemeanor traffic offense that leads to a ticket. And so um, they discussed at the at the bill hearing, turning that into a civil citation instead and um, just kind of changing the way that that would be enforced. But it is a ticket. The first penalty is a little lower. And then, you know, the amount you have to pay if you keep getting caught gets higher and higher. You said no one testified against the bill. Um, so with that said, who would testify against this bill? Yeah. <laughs> uh, surprise. Nobody wants to out themselves as the slow driver exactly. who hogs the left lane. <laughs> uh, so what happens next? What happens now? Where do we go from here? Well, this bill is most likely going to be voted out of the committee that considered it. It's a committee that has passed this type of bill before. And um, because of that, it led to like a very jovial kind of light hearing um, yesterday. Yeah, a little less heavy stuff. Um, And so I I think that this will probably pass out as well this this year. Yeah. So It's, it's up to the Senate. They've been the roadblock. Oh, I see what you did. 
I see what you did there. So this is this is good news, right? This is good news. If you're a commuter, I, I would assume you're probably happy about it. This yeah. Is, this is very very good news. When will it go into effect? Today? Hopefully, today, tomorrow? <laughs> no, no, not today. Um, I don't know the effective date on this bill, but the effective dates are generally July and October of the years after they're passed. So. Well, I'm excited for that. I'm it excited. could be coming your way by the end of summer, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we go we go from that to actually it's hard. It's hard to there's no good segue for this. But uh, no, <laughs> that's true. This was an interesting an interesting um, story this week that that you wrote that I, I did want to talk about. I had the opportunity to read a little bit of it. Uh, and it's about um, guns that are antique guns that can still actually kill people, but antique guns uh, make it easier for people to purchase guns for people who maybe shouldn't be purchasing guns. Do I read that correctly? Yeah. So this week was one of each year there are a couple of, you know, gun days, uh, so to speak, in the General Assembly. So a lot of the gun bills will get scheduled all on the same day in either the House, in, in both the House and the Senate. So, you know, I think the House had their hearings on the on a number of pieces of gun legislation in February. This past week is when the Senate heard um, more than a dozen bills relating to gun either tightening or loosening gun control in the state and one of the most poignant hearings that happened during that day was this discussion of a young woman who was killed in Germantown she was 24 a recent graduate um, planning to go to um, graduate school and she was killed by a an ex-boyfriend who had a criminal record that would have prohibited him from owning guns but what he did was he went online and he bought a replica firearm mm -hmm. so this was a replica of an 1851 pistol and it doesn't use your traditional ammunition that you can buy today um, you have to kind of use the old-timey stuff which is very corrosive and hard to handle um, but when you have a determination to load that gun correctly you can load it and you can fire it and replica guns are not considered regulated firearms under state or federal law so even though he was unable to go out and buy you know a modern day handgun he was able to go out and buy this replica pistol and he did um you know shoot and kill this young woman from germantown in a target parking lot in 2015 and her mother testified um about this as being a loophole that should be closed Frederick County Senator Michael Huff uh, sits on the Judicial Pro Proceedings Committee that will consider the proposed changes to Maryland's gun laws. Uh, did you get a chance to talk to him? It sounds like you did. So during the committee hearing, a lot of committee members um, seemed skeptical about whether or not passing this law would this particular law about the replica handguns as well as some of the other laws that were discussed would really do much to tighten Maryland's already fairly strict I, I would say maybe very strict gun laws mm -hmm. um, so it's unclear if this will move forward or not this year um, it is opposed by a number of gun gun rights organizations and I think this is the first time this bill has been introduced. So a lot of times it takes a few years to get more data, to get more testimony, to get more examples one way or the other to kind of seal the fate of legislation. So I'm not sure what will happen with this one this year. 
Uh, real quickly on this, it, there's something called a shall issue. Well, what's this? I was just curious. What's that? What's a shall <laughs> issue? Well, that that presumes that somebody would be able to get a gun permit rather than um, putting restrictions on it. So. Uh. Um, there's another bill that would make one of the reasons that somebody could get a handgun permit in the state of Maryland be for self-defense. Mm-hmm. And that really just opens it to anybody saying, hey, um, I'd like a gun. I need it for self-defense. Whereas right now, Maryland has a much, much more strict set of guidelines for when they will issue um, a concealed carry permit. So um, there was a fiscal note um, attached to to that bill, which said that if that self-defense reason for getting a handgun permit is accepted by the committees that would probably result in 100,000 new permits being applied for in the state. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. That's a lot, huh, okay. Well, we'll move off of that and we'll go to Hollywood. You ready to go to Hollywood? Yes, I would love to go to Hollywood. It's probably a lot warmer there. (laughs) Well, let's go to Hollywood. Is it snowing, by the way, in Annapolis? Um, let me look out my creepy window. Yes, it's snowing. There's a lot of snow earlier this morning. The The drive into work was very, very snowy. Anyway, okay. Uh, <laughs> Sam yes, Tressler. Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> Sam yes. Tressler, who I know. The fourth. The fourth yes, the fourth. Oh, okay. Um, I know his father because I've reported on the planning commission, so. So you know the third. Correct. Aha, aha. He's... He's yeah. very, very, very involved in the local s- film community here in Frederick. And he made it he to is. Annapolis. He made it to Annapolis this week, which I, I did not know about. And I'm happy to hear he did that. Uh, do you want to talk about what was discussed this week about how sort of independent films can maybe get more help from the state? He did. So there was quite a crew uh, <laughs> from Frederick <laughs> who, <laughs> thank you, who came to Annapolis uh This week, they were coming to testify on a bill sponsored by Senator Ron Young, and that bill would take the state's film tax credit, and it would make part of that available credit available to small and independent filmmakers. Um, Right now, the state does have a film tax credit. The amount for that credit is not um, set out as a legislative mandate, so the governor gets to decide each year how much to put in the state in the state budget for that this year it's five million dollars and five million dollars is going to house of cards Uh and that's it they're the biggest game in the state they get the full tax credit and uh this bill would require um that the first five hundred thousand dollars allocated for the film tax credit in a given year would go to smaller more independent uh, productions which the proponents of the bill say actually would have a greater local economic effect than um, the bigger productions that frank underwood i tell you what he's always yep. getting the money uh ron young uh was involved in this uh the proposed bill changes the state's film production activity tax credit program by requiring the department the department of commerce to reserve the first five hundred thousand dollars each year for smaller independent films uh, and this was led by ron young yeah he's the sponsor of the bill and it would set aside that five hundred thousand dollars and um the most that one production could get would be a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars so this would open up space where 
multiple smaller independent projects could see a, a tax benefit every year. Now, no one spoke against the bill, at least according to the story. Uh, where do we stand with it? Do we think this has a good shot of of working out for the film industry here? Locally? It's interesting to see uh, where it will go. It was well received by the committee. Um, you know, Senator Nancy King talked about the fact that, you know, her husband was in the Blair Witch Project, yeah. that other local production that we always talk about. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, Senator Ed Casemeyer, he's the um, chairman of the committee. He has been a big proponent of the film tax credit in the past. Um, but, and he, you know, led an effort to increase that funding uh, a few years ago when House of Cards wanted more money. So he's certainly um, indicated that he wants to see well more than the $5 million in Governor Larry Hogan's budget go towards a film tax credit. And he, you know, told the groups that were there um, this week that he was sorry about the way that it all worked out. It's unclear, um, you know, I think, the, again, this is the first time that this bill has been introduced, I believe. And so it's unclear um you know, there's no voting history to see where things might finally fall. Um, well, that's good. But that that brings me to a to another point that Ooh. I could make, which is okay. <laughs> that um, crossover day in the General Assembly is coming up, and that is the day by which all of the uh, bills need to be passed by one chamber in order to be guaranteed a hearing in the other chamber. So I'm pulling up my calendar really quick. Crossover day is, I believe, it is March 20th. So uh -huh. next week we're going to see a bunch, a bunch of bill hearings. And next week you're going to see all of these things that we're talking about, hopefully getting a vote up or down. So uh -huh. it won't be too long until we know what happens. Big, 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 uh, big week. Big weeks ahead, I guess. That's good. Because the, yes, yes. the 20th is and not And then it kind week. of, it, you know, you... Yeah, and then it kind of slows down and speeds up at the same time because after March 20th, a bunch of things are dead and they're not going to come back for Whoa. the rest of the session for the most part. So if you don't get a crossover, you know, you're not going to have a hearing in that opposite chamber, right? So yeah. the number of hearings goes down, but the time frame for those hearings like speeds way up because it's March 20th, session ends the second week of April. Uh -huh. So you have to get everything that does cross over that second hearing. So it's, it's an interesting time. It really starts to ramp up. I'm excited. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really do love my job, Colin. I okay. do. <laughs> um, so Wendy Peters, that's where we're going to go next, because uh, this seems yeah. to be she's more serious. note. yeah. Yes. On a more we go. We go from the serious to the not so serious to the serious to the not so serious. The best podcast on the Internet in session. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Governor Larry Hogan called for a Senate vote on his planning secretary nominee, which is Wendy, Wendy Peters. She's from Newmarket, but she's been facing a lot of criticism and it seemed to continue this week. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. So we talked about this, um, you know, the week after uh, Secretary Peters had her hearing before the Senate Executive uh, nominations committee and we talked about you know the number of questions that she faced on that day well as it turns out um, the committee was going to vote on her nomination on Monday and that vote was postponed uh -huh. and that has kind of drummed up a whole new round of of advocacy on her behalf and questions about how she's leading the department so I was able to um, 
get my hands on some of the testimony that's being sent to members of the executive nominations committee urging um, the committee to vote against Secretary Peters. She's held the position since July, um, but she obviously is subject to confirmation by the Senate. So um, Governor Hogan is still behind her. And former employees and people close to the office are sending the executive nominations committee a lot of messages about a broken morale and um, a lot of issues within the office. Yeah, what if I can ask you, what seems to be the biggest gripe? What what did people hold against her and why did they think that she should not be she should not have that position? Um, the questions that I'm hearing are questions about um, a lack of expertise in the field. So Secretary Peters was a local planning officer. She was a zoning administrator for the town of Mount Airy. Um, there are some questions about her level of expertise in the planning field. She didn't um, get a degree in that field um, and hasn't had experience uh, looking at those things on a statewide level, although she was Deputy Secretary of Planning before she was appointed to the cabinet level position. So there's some questions about her expertise. And then there's also um, a lot of questions swirling about um, um, her management style. Um, and we talked about, you know, a stricter dress code and strict um, cubicle policies and how clean your office needs to be. And um, I saw an email about, you know, the level of volume of conversations within the office and um, people having their desks moved without warning. So there are a lot of questions about her management style. I'm hearing from a lot of people behind the scenes that they question whether or not that is... Um, influenced by her gender, whether or not the same things would be coming up. But some of the messages sent to the committee members uh, assure them that it's it's not gender related. It's more about a, like workplace health issues. No kidding. Huh? Wow. So that's we uh, do. Do we see an end to this in sight or is. So I spoke with the chairman of the committee this week and he said, you know, they're still working on vetting. You know, as you said before, Governor Hogan had a press conference on an unrelated issue this week and he brought up uh, Secretary Peters and the fact that he would like to see her get a vote. Um, my most recent discussions yesterday indicated that, um, you know, it's we don't know when there's going to be a vote. Uh, the governor would like to see a vote on Secretary Peters. He also would like to see a vote on his nominee for um, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, Dennis Schrader. And he said that that nomination is critically important given the uh, health care debate we're having down in Washington and some other um you know, federal funding issues that the state is facing right now to not have a confirmed secretary at that department is a problem for him. Mm. So there's pressure on both sides and um, we will see what happens, I guess. Huh. We'll have to keep our eye on it, as, <laughs> as you would say. We will keep our eye on it. The next time the Senate Executive Nominations Committee meets is Monday night. So I will certainly either be here or be listening from home. You listen a lot. You listen to a lot of stuff, Danielle. I listen a lot. <clears throat> I admire <laughs> that. I admire that. Um, the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott and the great-great-great-nephew of Roger Brooke Tanny, or is it Tawny? Tawny. 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 Met for the first time last year. Uh, neither was sure what would happen well, we know what happened on Monday, I do believe. Do you want to tell us about this uh, This nice little yes. thing? Yes. 
Yes, there was some harmony in the state house this week. Um, there was a beautiful ceremony on the state house lawn, and it was between um, Charles Tawny the Fourth, or Charlie, as he uh, calls himself, and um, Lynn Tawny. Jackson. Charlie, <laughs> Charlie is the. Um, I don't know if you already said. I apologize, but Charlie is the great 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 nephew of yes. the former chief justice roger brook tawny mm -hmm. who we all know practiced law in the city of frederick um, with francis scott key by the way hey and um so the tawny family met with lynn jackson who's a descendant of dred scott dred scott of course we know um sued for his freedom as a, a slave and um Tawny handed down the Supreme Court's decision, which um, said that essentially he didn't have the right, he didn't have the standing to bring a lawsuit because black people were not U.S. citizens and had um, had no rights. And sh it also had a lot of very incendiary language, should never have rights. Um, uh, we're a different race. Uh, we're a different class of human. Um, it was a very, very uh, incendiary opinion. It really inflamed sentiments leading up to the Civil War. And um, it stings when you read it, uh, to be honest with you. And so these families met together and the Tawny family ap apologized for that opinion and for what it meant for generations of African-Americans thereafter. And um, it was a really beautiful uh, ceremony. It was really nice. Was it highly attended? There were um, just a few members of the, of the families there and there were, um, you know, a handful of press about the typical amount that you see at the state house um, and one of the things that they discussed is something I don't know if we talked about before but the the Tawny statue so they did this in yes. front of a statue of Roger Brook Tawny which is um, right outside the old historical entrance of the state house which you can't go into anymore you have to come in the other side um, I was gonna ask the you statue's been statue. called a lot of things okay yeah. So there's a former lawmaker who calls it a big turd on the state house lawn. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So it has gotten a lot of debate over the years. This goes back to um, so many debates that we've had about whether or not to remove these types of symbols um, from our state history, from public viewing. And um, the state discussed this last year. There was a bill to remove the statue. It did not go anywhere. Um, the families ultimately said that they wanted to advocate to keep the statue, but to add to it. So to add um, uh, a statue of um, Dred Scott or Frederick Douglass um, or both to the grounds and to put those people in um, in a situation where it would look like they were having a discussion with a statue of Roger Book Tawny oh, and to have, you know, interpretive plaques that would open up a discussion about race in America and how race relations have changed over time. And that's really what they um, have agreed to uh, throw their their weight behind as a policy for how to deal with this. That's interesting. That's kind of a, a nice little thing to have the statues appear like they're talking to each other. 
Yeah. And and this is um, something that has come up in the past. And, you know, a lot of people will point out there is the Roger Victani statue on the entrance that nobody comes in anymore. Um, But on the other side of the state house where people do walk in every day, there is a very extensive memorial for Thurgood Marshall. He's also, of course, a Maryland native. And he was the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court. And that... um, installation it's called lawyers mall there's a statue and some pillars and other statues and that was installed in the 1990s and that was during another period of debate about the tawny statue um but you can't see one from the other um and people think that maybe having something right directly at or near the tawny statue furthering that discussion is is a good way to go huh well well that We'll keep an eye on that on some level, I would think. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And there are no bills pending this year, but we'll see. The families said that they were going to do their part to help raise money privately to do an installation like that. And then we could see, you know, where legislation would go once there's a fundraising effort underway. You said there are no bills on that this year, but it, there is a bill green. There is a bill green. Yes. No, didn't work. Once again, didn't work nobody who week. listens to this knows who Bill Green is. <laughs> okay. Bill Green is an FNP photographer. <laughs> finally, it took, what, nine episodes to, to explain that. Um, <sighs> finally, every week I say this, I'm going to say this again until people start listening to me. Uh, the best thing to read in the newspaper each week is Danielle Gaines's political notes column, and we're going to talk about that right now. David Vogt uh, is hoping. Yes. It's true that the third time could be a charm for a bill that would limit senators and delegates to three consecutive terms in the same office and a lifetime maximum of five terms or 20 years as a member of the General Assembly. So where did this come about and how, how does everybody feel about this now? (laughs) Well, so term limits are, you know, a regular debate in politics, of course, and it's a debate that has happened in Maryland, obviously, uh, three times. This is the third time in recent years this bill has come up. Um, Delegate vote introduced it a couple of years ago. Before that, it was introduced by um, then-delegate, now-Senator Michael Huff. And um, this bill would just do just that. It would limit people to 20 years total in the General Assembly. And, um, you know, 12 year or 12 years in a row in the same office. So you could serve for 12 years as a delegate and then get elected to the Senate and serve an additional eight. But then you're out. You got to go. Um, and so he <laughs> says, you know, this is what you need to get fresh blood, fresh ideas, uh, new people coming in and out. And um, it faces a very, very tough audience in uh, Maryland because, um well, a third of the total General Assembly has served for more than the 20-year limit, according uh-huh. to a fiscal and policy note. Uh-oh. And uh, two, yeah. <laughs> and two <laughs> of the most important people in the General Assembly um, have served, uh, fall into that group. That includes House Speaker Michael Bush, who's the longest-serving head of the House of Delegates in Maryland history, and Senate President Thomas V. Mike Miller Jr., who has been a member of the General Assembly for longer than I have been alive. Ooh, well, you've only you're not so that old. he joined. <laughs> oh, I'm so young. Uh, he joined the General Assembly in 1971, so wow. he absolutely, you know, would be ousted if this bill were to take effect 
it also would have to get passed by the General Assembly and then um, it's a constitutional amendment. So it would still even have to go before voters. But vote feels it's important. There are 15 other states with term limits and uh, he's going for it. Will it happen? I don't think so. I mean, I, the, okay. the other two, uh, <laughs> the other two have passed, have failed just in recent years. Um, you know, this is a third in Montgomery County this year. We saw voters accept at the ballot box term limits for county council members, but it's much different to have uh, voters to limit limit their lawmakers than lawmakers um, limit themselves. And and there are two sides to the argument. Um, yeah. Some people say it's a good thing to have statesmen around. It's a good thing to have um, stability uh, in in the upper ranks of committee chairman and uh, committee chairwoman. And um, you know, Michael Bush and uh, Thomas uh, Mike Miller have, uh, as a team, been the longest serving team of legislative leaders in the U.S. history for several years now. I think. They became the longest serving team back in 2012, and they're still at it together in their respective chambers. Ooh, five years later. And I wanted to touch on this, however, briefly. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Senator Rong Young's bill that uh, there was a lot of de- a lot of controversy surrounding it uh, with Dolores Kelly, who submitted the same bill. Uh, who filed a word-for-word copy of a bill he'd worked on over the break, and we had audio of him talking about that, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. This week, he decided that he's going to sign on her bill? Yes. So uh, there certainly was sympathy for Senator Young in what appears to have happened, which is that he worked on a bill and somebody else took it and filed it. Um There certainly was sympathy for that situation, maybe not for the way that he um, confronted the committee about it. And as a way to resolve it all, uh, Senator Young has decided that since Senator Kelly is on the committee that's considering the bill, he would withdraw his bill. The committee is still doing work to amend or change um, Senator Kelly's version of the bill. Uh, Given the amount of testimony that they had, um, about some unintended consequences of the way the bill was drafted. It's actually still unclear whether or not it will pass out of the committee this year, um, but it is uh, alive in Senator Kelly's name, and uh, Senator Young's name has been added to her bill as a co-sponsor. Hmm. So everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if people are happy. Everyone's uh, getting along. The bill that, is moving forward. That's good, and... And I know you got to go. I know you got to go. But there was briefly this week hotel funding uh, for Frederick was discussed. Can you give us a quick 30 seconds on that? Sure. So I received a flurry of phone calls on Monday evening when I was here at the State House, concerned that um, money for the downtown Frederick Hotel and Conference Center had reemerged in the state budget. And I was. Uh, trying to track down how this could be. I knew that it didn't exist in any formal budget documents yet. Um, As it turns out, um, and and the individual who kind of started this is um, actually has commented on our website acknowledging where the mix-up came, Um, (laughs) but was looking through the state capital budget bill, which was introduced by Governor Hogan back in January, and saw a bunch of text relating to the downtown hotel and conference center and relating to getting $16 million in funding, which the governor told me he had taken out of the budget and which I had reported had been taken out of the budget. 
what happened in this particular case is that the governor did take it out of the budget because it was pre-authorized last year by the General Assembly. The language had to be in the budget bill and then it had to be taken out. In Maryland, when they draft bills, it would be great if they put, you know, like lines through the words that they're cutting out, but that's not how they do it. They use brackets. So ah. there's an open bracket and then an ending bracket and in between all of that language is deleted. Mm. In this case, <laughs> when the capital budget came out in January, the governor removed multiple pages of text Ooh. of pre-authorized spending from the General Assembly. So the beginning bracket that starts to delete language is on one page and the ending bracket is several pages later. So if you were doing a keyword search for the downtown hotel f um, conference center, you would see this page that has no brackets on it indicating <laughs> anything is deleted and talking about funding for the project. So that set off a little bit of a, a panic, I would uh -huh, say. Uh -huh. I, I saw Kathy F. Zali said, it's the same baloney different year. Close, close. Yes, yes. So. And and she and other members of the delegation are committed to, um, you know, fighting against state funding for this project. We talked earlier this year that Democrats in, in the delegation are still um, supportive of state funding for this project. And as soon as it wasn't in the governor's budget at the beginning of the year, we knew that it would come down to these last few weeks in the General Assembly. So the... House Appropriations Committee, which is considering the budget first this year before it moves on to the Senate, is doing their um, work on the capital budget next week. It's unclear whether or not they might um, choose to um, add the hotel funding back in then or whether or not that might be a move that comes later, perhaps after the bill crosses over to the Senate. And if, you know, two different versions of language on that project end up passing out of the chambers, then it would be a budget conference committee, a group of legislators from both chambers to, who would iron out the differences, who would ultimately make up that choice. Wow. That seems that seems like. And a then the governor can veto it. And, like, you know, it's all that whole thing is just getting started. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just getting started. Yeah. That's and we only have what a month left. We have a month left of. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, so what? I'll be keeping my eye on it. We can discuss it. Oh, we need to discuss it at length. At length. The next week is okay. St. At ne next Friday, St. Patrick's Day. If I'm not yeah, that St. Patrick's Day marks ten years since the day my husband asked me out for the first time. Oh my goodness gracious! Aww. Wow. Hello. Yeah. Has, uh, so we I'll, wanna, I'll be here working. <laughs> we'll take this opportunity to say hello to both your husband and your mother right now, then, because they are listening. We hope. We hope. Okay, yes. that's it. <laughs> that's but we that. will talk about a lot of things next week. <laughs> uh, and again, what was the best thing you had to eat? I have to ask you. Um, uh, I had sushi again. Oh, just sushi, sushi, sushi. That's, that's uh, if I'm going to pay to eat out, that's generally what I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you got a rush. Would you like to tell the people how they could follow you on the tweets? Yes, I'm at, at Danielle E. Gaines. Yeah, at, at Danielle E. Gaines. <laughs> That's it, yes. <laughs> it's that uh, easy. I was wondering what you were going to say after that. I didn't know there was something else. I have uh, no idea. <laughs> well, I know you're tired. Well, thank you, Colin. Thank you so much. Have a good day, Danielle. You too. Bye-bye.
In Session is produced by Graham Cullen and Chris Sands. A special thanks goes to Kelsey Luce for composing our theme. Be sure to hit subscribe on iTunes or Google Play so you can stay current with all the developments in Annapolis this session. Join us next week when we'll discuss the week that was in the General Assembly.